I'm a political scientist with a background in molecular biology. So in a former life, I first studied the genetic changes of laboratory flies and the morphological changes of human cells before becoming interested in social and political changes. By the term governing life, I mean the political regulation of living beings. One of the particularities of the politics of life is that issues in this area can't be disconnected from moral and also <coughs> from scientific uncertainties. This last point constitutes a kind of, of a blind spot in political studies. In order to go further into this last point, I will combine normative political theories with concrete observation of professional practices in biological processes. In this lecture, I focus on the interfaces between scientific uncertainty, moral statements, and political regulation. The politics of life includes at least three different sectors of activity, and all of them make policy making difficult. The first sector concerns the regulation of biotechnologies. By this, I mean the use of living systems <coughs> and orga organisms to develop products for medical or agricultural purposes such as regenerative medicine, synthetic biology, or recombinant gene techniques. The second sector concerns the administration of life itself. The course of a lifetime is characterized by many events such as beginning and end of life care, pregnancy, etc. These aspects are regularly controversial in a number of countries. The third sector is the long-term management of biodiversity and environmental ethics. This issue highlights the challenge of producing stable and reliable collective expectations on how natural resources will develop in the future. The political regulation of living beings constitutes a particularly interesting challenge as living beings is inherently less stable than inert material. Each of the three sectors is characterized by the need to deal with an uncertainty inherent to living beings. I will come back to this point. Their political regulation has specific points. We have to pay attention to the six following listed points, but I would like to stress on the first one. Political regulation of living beings is characterized by endless controversies without any definitive solutions. So I would like to show that the relationship between scientific expertise and political issues is clearly related 
to implicit epistemological positions. Some of these reflect the cognitive bias all stakeholders, policymakers, and healthcare professionals have. Firstly, I focus on the difficulty of maintaining a clear distinction between situations which stem from risk assessment and those belonging to the realm of uncertainty. I would say that the shift from uncertainty to risk leads to an excessive application of the precautionary argument. <coughs> as shown on the slide, a risk is defined as a set of possible events and probabilities related to a given situation. Uncertainty occurs when it is not possible to give an objective assessment of probabilities or to describe the events that might occur. I would point out that uncertainty is not specific to disruptive innovation. It is a part of our everyday life. And in other words, uncertainty is an ontological dimension of life. I would like to illustrate this common confusion between risk and uncertainty by taking the problem of brain damage patients support. This confusion highlights the difficulties in resolving political controversies over the, over the right to die for brain damaged people. Here you have an illustration of neuroimaging comparing the oxygen circulation of a healthy brain and the same from a patient diagnosed as being in a permanent vegetative state. These brain-injured injured patients have irreversibly lost their capacity for conscious consciousness, but maintain some physio physiological functions such as breathing. Compared to brain death, the brain metabolism of vegetative patients is globally decreased to 50% of normal value, but is clearly not absent. The evolution of this state is unpredictable. The patient may not recover or evolve to a minimally consci conscious state and sometimes to a lock-in syndrome. Lock-in syndrome is a terrible condition for a patient. It complete paralysis of the body's motor response, also it keeps a full consciousness. So there is a strong level of uncertainty in the medical prognosis. So as we have just seen, the brain, the brain metabolism of a vegetative state and a healthy subject is part of a <coughs> continuum. Researchers aim at defining standardized tools to reduce the in incidence of misdiagnosis. Some patients are diagnosed in a vegetative state, also they are in minimally conscious state or even suffering from lock-in syndrome. Minimally con conscious and vegetative states 
define a strong gray zone regarding their diagnostic category. One major difficulty for physicians is that there is no clear neuroscientific criteria underlying consciousness states nor standard of predictability. So the problem is more than a need for accuracy or the reliability of medical knowledge, it is an epistemological problem. The concept of consciousness by itself is not a biological one, but a social construction allowing everyone to report a complex phenomenon of our being in the world. What researchers measure is an avatar of this idea of consciousness. So the gray zone surrounding <coughs> these diagnostic categories, this uncertainty is not only scientific, but is deeply epistemological. So it's not firstly a moral problem, even if uh, after it becomes. Let's now have a look at political issues. This slide shows some well-publicized cases dealing with brain damage patients. Vari various cases exist worldwide, and for each one, a strong disagreement about end-of-life decisions can be observed. These patients do not necessari necessarily have a short life expectancy. The ontological status of these patients is unclear because nobody has <coughs> a knowledge whether these patients are alive, dead, or in some other state. So the endless conflict focuses on whether or not healthcare professionals must maintain their life-sustaining medical treatment or not. What consequences do these questions have on a political level? I argue that the epistemological <coughs> uncertainty about diagnosis reinforces the difficulties encountered in resolving political controversies over end-of-life decisions for brain-damaged patients. The French patient Vincent Lambert, who was diagnosed as being in a vegetative state seven years ago, is an example of the strong disagreement on this issue. Despite successive diagnoses confirm that the young man is in a severe and irreversible vegetative state, Lambert's parents contested the decision and the case was referred to several French <coughs> courts and to the European Court of Human Rights. All confirm that doctors have the right to switch off his life support system. The international press made headlines last June about a post on YouTube of a video by <coughs> pro-life activists under the title Vincent Lambert is not at the end of his life. This video shows the young man apparently reacting to the sound of his mother's voice. Hello Vincent, I'm calling from Strasbourg. News are not good. The European Court has acknowledged the right to kill you. 
So by manipulating, manipulating this image, the parents have created confusion by arguing that Vincent is severely disabled, but not at the end of his life. So regulation <coughs> surrounding end-of-life decisions for brain-damaged patients continues to be problematic. Public action in this area lies at the intersection of two sectors, the end-of-life and severe handicap. This explains why such controversies continue to exist. The first policy choice concerns end-of-life care for patients in palliative care units, and the second one is related to severe handicap which falls under physical medicine <coughs> and rehabilitation services. The first policy addresses the issue of dignity in dying while the second addresses the specific needs of patients who, are, who have suffered irreversible brain damage. According to the logic of end-of-life care, life sustained support is legally considered as a treatment likely to be switched off if they constitute an unreasonable obstinacy that has no other effect than the artificial maintenance <coughs> of life. In contrast, professionals caring for brain damaged patients see these treatments as basic care which should not be switched off from those clinically stable patients because they provide comfort. So the, the cognitive bias here is to consider that uncertainty necessarily <coughs> has to be reduced even when this is impossible. Also, it is clear that the absence of proof of consciousness does not prove that consciousness is in effect <coughs> absent. Um, I think we have to accept the existence of a reasonable uncertainty. The reduction of an uncertainty to a probability, however small, of consciousness is a dangerous application of the precautionary argument. Consequences are the following. Firstly, it's problematic to base moral, moral decision on the possible existence of consciousness for brain damaged patients if clinical investigation doesn't clearly identify, identify the presence of consciousness. Therefore, the social legal handling of brain damaged people <coughs> has led to a legal unreasonable obstinacy. This is a never ending story even if this statement sound, sounds strange for social scientists. So this example shows that it's very difficult to employ the right descriptive language when dealing with living systems. The ontological irreducibility we observe for the notion of consciousness is likewise existing for other biologi biological notions. <coughs> um, 
I think because uh, we, are, uh, we, we are short of time, I will uh, skip this couple of uh, slides. Uh, I will uh, take this example. Uh, the ambiguity of the language used is one of the reasons why the ontological uncertainty surrounding living beings is confused with the pejorative notion of risks. This explains why many political controversies about living beings are irreducible. Let take, let's take another example. The term genetically modified is not a scientific term. It's a social legal category. <coughs> Mutations and genetic changes are components of biological evolution. No life possible without continuous genetic changes. For centuries, traditional plant breeding practices have led to genetically modified plants with the help of human intervention and this without creating any controversies. They are truly genetically modified since artificial changes in their environments lead to some mutations being favored and others not. So the point is, to what extent a transgenic plant implemented by current technology is more modified than those that stem from traditional <coughs> breeding practices? Just a question. This question leads me to another cognitive bias, the division between what is natural and what is not. If one looks at opinion surveys, one can observe that people are still unfamiliar with existing technologies such as cloning, <coughs> genetic engineering, and stem cell research. Studies show that levels of knowledge in this area are a weak predictor of public attitudes. However, the semantics used to describe the complexity of living beings is a strong dependent variab variable of public attitudes. The more the technique is described as artificial, the more it has a negative connotation for public opinion. For instance, the idea of the creation of a bacteri bacterial cell is an inspiring metaphor. But the, problem, but the problem is that this word has negative connotations. One study has shown that individuals, individuals had more negative perceptions when the word create was used to describe biotechnologies inst instead of the word construct. So word choices have a strong effect on public perception of biotechnologies and on their level of risks. An illustration of GMO perception <coughs> from a search, search via Google image. So as you can see, 
the negative connotation of the images is clearly related to the concept of artificiality. So, the, the difficulty of putting a division in place between natural and artificial is very pr pronounced in brain-damaged controversies. The French end-of-life law considers <coughs> that one may withdraw life-sustaining treatments if their only effect is to artificially sustain life. But to what extent do these support constitute an artificial life-sustaining treatment? The Council of State uh, has pointed out the problem of the use of the term artificial. Many lives are maintained with artificial means, such as insulin injections or organ transplants. <coughs> the legislator argues that the artificial maintenance of life refers to life in a strictly biological sense. That is to say, when it remains life without human kind. But this still falls into a trouble category. What does life without human kind mean? We see here the limits of the operational character of the distinction between natural and artificial. So the difficulty of putting a division between <coughs> natural and artificial is clearly present in the idea of euthanasia. In France, euthanasia is forbidden. The doctors should not deliberate, deliberate, deliberately cause death and stop a natural biological process. But again, stopping a natural process, what does that mean? Is there a real ethical difference between switching off a life-sustaining treatment or injecting a, a lethal substance? If the first option seems to leave biolo biological nature to take its own course and the second option <coughs> to deliberately switch off, what is really natural to the course of a lifetime. Our life expectancy is gradually increasing thanks to medical progress. Should we consider that the course of our lifetime is natural and should be devoid of any artificial support? In conclusion, I would say that the normative political th theory needs support of social ontology to deepening ethical issues of various actors facing social, scientific and political uncertainties. In this way, political analysis would benefit from interacting more with laboratories and hospitals in other words, with people who <coughs> intervene directly in biological processes. One may have the great tendency to underestimate the complexity of living beings and its ontologi ontological part of uncertainty. However, these, quest these questions 
the decision-making process in a context of uncertainty. I would say that disagreement between stakeholders is not necessarily a sign that we are on the wrong track, but just an indication that we can't avoid any error margins. So let's agree to disagree. And I think we need a, a collective and interactive reflection about professional dissensus approach to policy. And the dissent should not lead, lead to do nothing. So uh, I give you an illustration of uh, an excessive application of the uh, precautionary uh, argument. So thank you. Thank you.